0: Welcome to Mortal Science, Before and After Marxism, where we trip all over Endnotes's capstone essay, A History of Separation from Volume 4. And we marvel at how much longer this is going to take than, you know, 200, 300-something-page Cleodynamics book by Turchin that we read in the beginning.
1: Yeah. The- I barely remember now, because I've been focusing on this (laughs) for so long. It's important that we read critical theory to push
0: out all of that, all those mathematical models out of our brains. That's what it's there for.
1: You know what I love is being able to figure out what a person's bracketing out and the assumptions that they have, as opposed to like not even knowing how to figure out what claims they're fucking making. You you have to read a hundred books
0: in order to do that. You need to be a personal library.
1: To be fair to our critique of Turchin, you also have to factor in some geopolitical stuff and some other things that he is not even addressing. You couldn't just, I don't want to, like, let you get away with going all positivistic. (laughs) We've got enough of that right now.
0: All I'm saying is that there are standards in that field. And, you know, Endnotes is doing something that I think is a cut above most of what this field is doing and also gets to play with the relative lack of standards of the field. Or rather, what standards are there are maybe not virtuous research standards, let's say. They're sort of trollish, contrarian research standards.
1: that has been a problem with critical theory this whole time, particularly anything influenced by the fucking French. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I actually appreciate the early post-structuralist and post-post-structuralist attempts at this because they weren't trying to come up with laws. They were basically trying to either phenomenologically explain a disaffectation that came out of their engagements with the left in the 60s, or they were just trying to blow up meaning itself. So, like, <laughs> like which is admittedly more ambitious, but actually easier to do. I mean, I could just point out that <laughs> Nargajuna's trilemma are, um, are Agrippa's uh, also called a gripper's trilemma but it's actually not it's a five-fold thing that destroys all axioms by itself i mean you, like like people figure out how to destroy meaning like in in the fifth century bce but like
0: <laughs> yeah but coming up with the laws for a mode of production no no now that i think is an exquisite challenge <laughs>
1: um it's a lot harder than anyone thinks apparently also yeah. like trying to prove that modes of production are actually real is another problem. Yeah, good luck Uh, with that.
0: I I remember... Maybe maybe the axioms can explain themselves, Derek.
1: I remember our our mutual um, frenemy one time claiming that he would not use the word capitalism to describe any economic transaction because the periodization problems have a multiplier effect. And while I think that makes differentiation between economic periods utterly impossible. And so you couldn't explain like the productive differences between feudalism and industrial society and quotation marks for people who won't see the, us talking. Um, <laughs> the underlying impulse that causes that makes sense to me, because we, all are, we we always have to like, what are the four or five, you know, necessary correlates of, of this periodization? How do we historiographically define it? And then what do we do when we keep finding this shit in the history over and over and over again before we say it happens? Uh, so: yeah, i I do recall our
0: discussion on McNair and the sort of law-like tendency towards working class organization and capitalism that I just kind of kept tripping over and being like, but what if what if there's different periods of capitalism? What if that doesn't apply anymore?"
1: Yeah, what if we also have no empirical evidence that that applies anymore, like anywhere on the goddamn planet that's fully developed? <laughs>
0: like, I really think that if you're you know, not nomophobic, if you're interested in laws, um, if you're interested in laws of history, you could do a lot worse than looking at this essay um, because it does have an explanation for the rise and fall of the workers' movement, what it was about that kind of capitalism that created the opportunity and the potential for a workers movement. Um, As we were saying last time, it kind of doesn't exactly process its trauma and the left's trauma because it wants to say on the one hand, the workers movement was, you know, made possible by this configuration of capitalism. But on the other hand, it was completely politically determined and you know, it wasn't any good anyway. It's a sort of sour grapes thing going on here that I, I feel like maybe clouds the ability to grieve our trauma um, in, in the loss of the workers movement. But um,
1: my inner Chris for is kicking in and I want to reject all your psychologicalizations, but go ahead. Like,
0: <laughs> I was just going to even go deeper into the psychology here mm-hmm. because of and I think it's a mutually shared sort of psychology here is that we we kind of think it might not be as traumatic for the authors as it might be for the participants of the workers movement, which yeah. there are some endnotes essays to that effect, actually, where they're like, this is not ours. But I think we mean that in a different way. Maybe
1: you can elaborate. Well, I mean, you know, um, while the workers' movement is often not celebrated by members of the working class itself, even though the DSA, friends of ours, don't want to hear such things, um, particularly as it's manifested in the bureaucratic end of, of union organizing, business unions, and trade guilds, some of which are even explicitly called guilds, um, which amuses the crap out of me. The, uh, the, the loss is felt in that people do not feel that they have a, a method in which to do much about their lives in the same way when they are in those social classes. I and mean, one of the things about the the addendum on the lumpen proletariat, and then we'll might talk about this in the lumpenization of the proletariat itself, is a lumpenization of the proletariat itself is coming from the same hopelessness and lack of of uh I mean, I hate using the Marxist, Hegelian, Kantian in itself for self-distinction, but la- lack of for itselfness or lack of, of political levers, to use a more modern terminology, um, to negotiate with any of this for. And I mean, like one of the things that I have pointed out is the popularity of unions in the, in the United States is almost directly proportional to how bad they got their ass kicked in the decade and a half prior. <laughs> um I mean literally the popularity of unions starts to go up the moment that the old auto unions are finally crushed in 2007 um partly because a lot of what the auto unions had done was instrumentally rational um for favoring things like you know older workers who can't get another job and but but also long-term detrimental as hell because they continue to do that at the cost of newer workers, as opposed to just as an additional protection, as workers got older and the work and the protections did not go down to younger workers, meaning that, and when I mean like stuff like that, like better insurance um, negotiation, better, there was all kinds of things. And so a lot of people, both in that field and adjacent to it, like my father, who uh, is an auto mechanic, did not cry a tear when the auto unions were crushed. And yet, and yet um, I think everybody feels that loss now, particularly as I see the gig economy just go and finish, like even getting around the legal non-union protections that we had in the United States, because no one even knows how to categorize this. That, that is in some sense, very really traumatic, but we have forgotten in a lot of ways how we got there. and, We also forget that a lot of people who really, really love unions right now aren't in them, which is (laughs) funny, but also very true. And I know that seems like a rapid generalization, but unless you're leading a social union campaign um, in a major city, most people really don't have a lot. of. I mean, most of the people on the left are not in fields that are heavily unionized, except for um, like professors unions or whatever, which are. I don't know. I mean if if you're a professor you have that you already have a tenure guild society on top of the you know three tenure you're on top of the fact of any protections you may or may not have.
0: It's a different sort of unionism than the kind that predominated in the workers movement. It's more akin to the pre workers movement kind of guild system and that's not even to shit on them. You know, it's no. just kind of talking about the structure of what kind of union it is and you know
1: and for all of my shitting on the AFL-CIO or whatever, which, you know, I can do all day. Um,
0: there, I have no, You misspoke CIA, yes.
1: <laughs> for all of those problems um, with the AFL-CIO, um, it has tried to address some of these issues. Like, for the fact that most of its budget for, like, the last bajillion years until Obama went directly into lobbying um, are to run itself, you know. So, It's fees probably for most of the unions did not go into political actions. I know, like, for example, in my union, um, the the fees go into running itself. But that goes into the salaries of of union administrators and into basically getting benefits. It is is more like joining a professional organization um, than even a guild. Now, sometimes in certain areas, um, very active union chapter people will take it over. And turn it into something and try to get it into social unionizing. Like, I think um, I've heard about this happening in Minneapolis. It happened in Chicago and the big in the big thing, uh, the big teacher strikes during the Obama years. Um, it's happened a lot in the growth of a particular union, the AFT, the, uh, the American Federation of Teachers, as an answer to the NEA. I I say this all, though, in a very long and elaborated way, because sometimes I wish we actually got in the details and you can pin them down. and. Crap like this, and I, I say crap. I don't mean it as I'm just frustrated right now. It's not because I think it's bad um necessarily. Uh, but but we do live in an area a time where, like, God, we kill for the kind of social organization that you had in the early workers movement, even when it was even if it was like imposing bourgeois norms on us, yeah. When you read
0: Monsieur Dupont and you read the bitterness towards militants, it's kind of earned. It makes sense because you're reading from ex-militants, right? Mm -hmm. It's people crushing their own hopes, in a sense. (laughs) Um, Whereas Endnotes is going not for the left's agency as much as it is the condition that underpinned the left's agency in a way that is ostensibly directed at the left, and it's desire to kind of live in the past but one can't in my view help but get the feeling that they take a sort of gleeful attitude towards the dashing of hopes for a proletarian movement they have decent theoretical reasons for doing so but and they actually would would not agree with that phrasing you know that it's just the Construct of class identity and the workers' movement—the idea of a workers' movement that's based around working class identity—that they object to, or that they think is impossible. Right. Um, that they think they think is impossible, but also undesirable, um, and that they do want the proletariat in fighting form, just in a way that's possible. And you know, if you read them charitably, you know, sure. Like I, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that. However, it's clear that their desire to personally break with hopes for a new workers movement sometimes comes out a little cheekily and rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> this really comes out in uh, in notes three more than four, I think. They do a decent eulogy for the workers movement later on, even though they're trying to kind of be like, oh, cheer up. It wasn't that great. Like. <laughs> Right. It's, uh, as, as we noted last time, the high point of the workers' movement lasted about as long as this lull without it. And the condition of the proletariat is very desperate without it.
1: Well, yes and no. One of the things that left communists have tended to do when communization does come out of that milieu and also crashing into an anarchist milieu, um, you know. One of the things that we can say about it, though, is that, you know, we talk about the desperation of the proletariat. It is both true and, in one sense, and yet I'm going to risk sounding like a Maoist. It is also not true in the sense that until very recently things have been bad for all the world. It's more that the developed world's proletariat is now, I mean, workers' movement, or whatever you want to call it. Um, is now subjected to many of the same conditions that existed in Periphery the entire damn time. I mean, Turchin weirdly actually pretty much argues exactly that, although he would never use those words. And also, but he does it on this weirdly nationalistic international competition, the stability within a nation framework. The other thing that I noticed is a lot of these same arguments are normally made, but they're made by anarchists or even Marxists who think that that the workers' movement got blindsided by tendencies within the upper strata of its own class, you know, a la Christopher Lash, um, a la Aaron Reich, who doesn't even see this as a bad thing, just as a thing. You hear this language used now throughout the DSA and DSA-adjacent Marxists and... Uh, about the professional managerial class and the professional strata and the managerial strata and the managerial society and all this. Um, What's interesting about this is this actually addresses that without positing this weird intermediary class that no one can truly pin down what its economic, you know, relations to production really is, how it isn't dependent on the wage fund or is or any of that, nor does it posit that somehow the state is not capitalist in such a way that workers for the state are not in the capitalist circuit. Um, so again all those things, um, all the normal answers that you see to avoid avoid this kind of criticism um, are not allowed I will give end notes that because that's the easy thing that you could see any like anarchist social almost I mean Maoists effectively have done this even like one of the first essays I never wrote, um, was 13 Ways of Looking at a Lack of an Existing Workers Movement, which was going to go through all the theories about why it didn't happen. Three or four different theories of labor aristocracy, neoliberalism, attachment to bureaucratic collectivism. Um. This
0: doesn't fall into most of those traps, because the bureaucracy is a, essentially, you know, lawful outgrowth of... Proletarian, or excuse me, a workers' movement scaling up, right? Which and I and I do accept your, you know, kind of third worldist rejoinder, but I will say that like the disappearance of the workers' movement in the first world did not empower the third world. In any no, no, it weakened them. Yeah. this is
1: why I'm not a third worldist. Is the the, yes. the the decimation of the of the workers' movement in in the developed world is shit for everybody. It is only great for certain states who try to use the leverage to their own advantage to collect raw capital, or at least the currency to buy raw capital. It is not great for any particular workers in that movement unless you think that workers' movements can be identified by their states, in which case, yay. But that seems useless (laughs) to me.
0: Hey, these are the people's suicide nets, all right? it's Fucking Western imperialist. Jeez. these
1: are the, these are the people's re-education camps this is a, a people's war on terror okay yeah like yeah.
0: haven't you read monthly review if you ever feel like that you haven't like lived up to your potential in life imagine publishing Albert Einstein then publishing several decades later genocide denial so you'll never be as much of a disappointment as monthly review anyway <laughs> I'm gonna cut that I want I want some of that monthly review money I want some of that dangest money.
1: Anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah, I was about to say, Monthly Reviews now has a podcast. Their their podcast is, and this is going to get caught, but their podcast is a Left MMT podcast. It's not no even shit, Marxist. Really? It's put out by <sighs> Monthly Review. They're not even fucking Marxist anymore. Not really. Didn't Sweezy start them? It was Sweezy in an alliance with a lot of people out of the IS tradition who left when the ISO got all weird. So that was like the Draper and Brinner and Wood. They were all involved in that too.
0: Man, never trust a trot.
1: And Sweezy was part of the classic IS tradition. That's why I keep on reading people who got an IS who have Sweezy Mm -hmm. interpretations of capital. Anyway, it's all got to be cut out. So let's move on. (laughs) Let's just
0: move right along. There is one thing that mitigates our sort of critique of endnotes as like reactionaries. You, You know, there's that book, The Reactionary Mind. That gives a very specific kind of look at reactionaries as people that punch down and then tell you, my target isn't the people I'm punching. It's the social mores of those, you know, elite leftists that like the people that I'm punching at.
1: Yeah, Cory right. Robbins, including... <laughs> Sorel in a reactionary mind for that reason.
0: Right. So, you know, I think it's easy to read Endnotes as being reactionaries because they're punching up this workers movement in order to hurt the left and to flay their dreams. In reality, like a lot of working class people aren't looking forward to a union movement to bail them out. So like I can see the temptation on Endnotes part. But anyway, I think something that mitigates that somewhat is the way that the workers movement itself punches down. And there is an addendum on the lumpen proletariat in the construction of the workers' movement section that I think we'll start with.
1: So, yeah, I'm going to read some sections of this just so we can move on. So, we have referred elsewhere to the surplus population as an extreme embodiment of capital's contradictory dynamic.
0: It has a footnote to you, Misery and Debt from Endnotes 2. It's one of their best essays worth reading.
1: What is the relationship between the surplus population and the lumpen proletariat? Are they one and the same? Whereas Marxist expounds on surplus population at length in capital, he does not refer to the lumpen proletariat at all in that work. He uses the phrase only in his political writings. And as we may add, since you and I are both in a different project recently read the Rumaire, not in a way that's particularly consistent how did the a popular topic amongst revolutionaries in the course of the 20th century and we forget because we have post-panthers brain how big a deal this was
0: i mean yeah what the panthers were doing is you know very unique for the marxist tradition as more in common with, with the bakuninist uh, tradition the bakuninist tradition which endnotes in the last essay of this volume called an identical subject abject question mark which has a terrible name, but it's pretty good. Uh, They argue against this kind of Bakuninist valorization of the Lumpen.
1: Yeah. As it turns out, Lumpen proletariat was a key category for the workers' movement, and particularly for Marxist scorn, 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 (laughs) um, emphasis mine, in their social democratic (laughs) and Bolshevik variants. Marxists were always hurling curses at the proletariats and anarchists alike, so much that the two categories blended together. According to Rosa Lumpenberg in the Max Strike, anarchism has become, in brackets added 1905, the Russian Revolution, not the theory of the struggling proletariat, but the ideological signboard of the counter-revolution lumpenproletariat, who, like the school of sharks, swarm in the wake of the battleship of revolution. And so even good old Red Rosa... Was not against yeah, lump and shaming,
0: unfortunately.
1: Who were these lump and proletariats preaching anarchy? It's funny, as a side note, when I got into Marxist class typologies, where we would blame an ideology on a particular social class, we always blamed anarchism on peasants, which was even weirder. I, I, I'm going to read the, the the Brumaire, although you know I just mentioned it, the 18 Brumaire. On the pretext of the founding of the benevolent society, the lumpen proletariat of Paris had become categorized into secret sections, and each section led by a Bonapartist agent. These lumpens were supposedly consisted of vagabonds, uh, discarded soldiers, and jailbirds, escaped galley slaves, swindlers, mountebanks, lazarati, pickpockets, tricksters, gamblers, pens, brothel keepers, porters, literati, organ grinders, rag pickers, knife grinders, tinkerers, beggars, in short, the infinite disintegrated mass thrown hither and thither, which all the French call La Boheme. Isn't there a musical about that? Yeah. <laughs> you will notice that even, even the, the people who categorize this as the people who try to formalize lumpen, they always say it is the class A masses who live off and exploit or extract from the proletariat itself. Some of those people don't do that.
0: And they go on to say, is there any truth... In this paranoid fantasy, do escaped convicts and organ grinders share a common counter-revolutionary interest with beggars, which distinguishes them from the common mass of workers who are apparently revolutionary by nature? To think so is insane, which I would have to agree with them about. When you try to formalize this, what you end up with is wage good, so if you work for the boss and you get paid, that's fine, But like proles buying something off of you, bad. Yeah. If if, if proletarians spend their wages on you, you're a parasite. But But
1: you're different from petite bourgeois somehow because of what you sell, not your relationship to selling.
0: Right. Unless you're a sex worker, in which case you might be petty bourgeois just because your body's means of production all of a sudden. Yeah. When you try to formalize these sort of excluded proletarians, you go some real crazy ass places. And the left communists that do try sound like conservatives. We did say this in the 18th Brumaire series. I think Sophie did an Alex Jones impression running through this list. This is nuts. I got into Marxism, you know, in part because of of the promise of class analysis. When you go to the political works, you do see some of Marx's framework carry over. Lump and proletariat is not one of those categories.
1: I was about to say, the the surplus population of the reserve army of labor would be identical to the lump and proletariat. I mean, the only difference is the, I guess, the reserve army of labor just sits and waits for it to get a job and doesn't <laughs> try to survive in any way, form, or fashion in desperation or right. an interest. Like, because the other thing about these is some of these are voluntary categories, like literati. that's literati (laughs) like so
0: everyone
1: involved in every conversation they've ever had so yeah i was about to say marx meets this definition of lumpenpro by the way um (laughs) yeah he made his living in so much that he didn't make it off of living off of ingles selling like articles and polemics to papers and countries he didn't live in it was okay if he was Engels'
0: is theory wife, because Engels was bourgeois and siphoning off of Engels was fine. But if you siphon off of the workers by selling them pamphlets.
1: <laughs> right. So the Lumpen proletariat was a specter of haunting the workers' movement. If the movement constituted itself as a movement for dignity of workers, then Lumpen was the figure of the undignified worker. Or more accurately, the Lumpen was one of its figurations. All the movement's efforts to give dignity to the class were supposedly undermined. But these dissolute figures, drunts singing in the street, petty criminals and prostitutes, references to the lumpen proletariat's register was a simple truth. It was difficult to convince the workers to organize as workers, since mostly they didn't care about socialism. A great many of the poor, and especially the very poor, did not think of themselves or behave as proletarians or define the organizations of these actions of the movement as applicable or relevant to them. As a side note, um, Anarchists like Ron Tabor actually use this to cite that Marxism was never a movement of the working class, but was actually a movement of the subsection of a working class. It was establishing a managerial class, you know, which is an old anarchist <laughs> argument. But like, that's how they justify It's this right here.
0: It's slightly different. That Hopswam quote to end notes ends up talking about, you know, the proletariat excluded from this very specific semi-skilled section of the proletariat that was involved in setting up. The logistics grid, essentially, and the infrastructure of the modern world, which is the next chapter.
1: Right. So in the figure of the lump, and we discovered the dark underside of the affirmation of the working class, it's abiding class hatred. Workers saw themselves as originating out of a stinking morass. At the time, in the beginning of the modern industry, the term proletariat implied absolute degeneracy. And there are persons who believe this is still the case. Yeah, that's Kowski. (laughs) <laughs> Moreover, capitalism was trying to push the workers back into the muck. Thus, the crisis tendencies of capitalism could only end in one of two ways: in the victory of the class, or in becoming lumpen. I think you see still the ghost of this in like degeneracy and in um, regression theories. The proletariat missed
0: its window; it can't win. It has to degrade with the rest of capitalist society.
1: Which on my bad days, I'm sympathetic to, but this leads to crazy stuff. I mean, like the Maoist, you know, non-enemy classes categories because they tried to deal with this, Um, re-educations, and then when they couldn't re-educate them, they'd just shoot people Um, like, you know, like uh, you do to your non-enemies, right? There's a really messed up tendency in that way of thinking you do see the same thing you see in racial politics. Like we have to create another other for which you to be better than to differentiate yourself from other than the other that is above you. There must also be an other beneath you. I mean, I don't want to get all like structural, psychological, anthropological in here, but I can't remember which crazy Nazi I was reading. Um, (laughs) I I mean, this was a classical crazy Nazi. This was not a modern one, but someone in in your defense, (laughs) Someone's got to read the dark shit, all right? Uh, I guess no one really has to, but it's it's better that someone does.
0: Probably be it for me to
1: say that you shouldn't be in the enemy camp sometimes. I, mean. <laughs> I remember reading somebody saying basically about race politics to class politics. We learned it from you. Even though racial categorization predates class c- categorization, you know, as far as like the way we talk about things. But like racialized politics, they're like, yeah, we learned all this from the workers movement. Which I don't totally think is true because America kind of messes that up. No, but like... no, 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 no. Yeah, I was going
0: to say, like, I just heard the Star Spangled Banner in the background and thought, is that real? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but I get, I get how they could claim that because of this whole, like, excluded, we got to create an excluded under. I mean, and, and what, what is crazy is, is the concept of proletarian, classically, pre-Marxism, is about that class. It is right. an utterly propertyless without any means of subsistence.
0: Nothing but the shirt on their back. You can see why, in a way. Like they have to do, you know, proto respectability politics because, in a sense, that depressing disjunction that either you have the victory of this working class with this homogenized, like Foucauldian expression, identity that is used to control you if you identify with it. If that doesn't win, you do have full capitalism. They don't want to say real subsumption, but I don't know what else it is. You know, full capitalism is when you can't even form a union because you can't even imagine coherent working class interests.
1: Right. The other thing that we have to deal with in this, um, to some degree, when you read the descriptions of the effects of lumpenization, it is true that what we have seen in the working classes lower lower income sectors. You couldn't in America tell me the difference between someone who works a gig economy job or uh, at 7-Eleven who also has a side hustle that may be selling drugs looks any different from the way Marx is describing the lumpen proletariat. And yes, I will admit that there is something very parasitic about like drug trade or like sex trafficking. These are things we should oppose. But... I don't even know how it makes a coherent class this way without forcing the entirety of the reserve army into it if they don't have state support to survive.
0: Sex trafficking like managers like because the uh, amazing claim of the classical workers movement is that it is the sex workers themselves that are the predatory exploiters. Right. <laughs> right. Which is like the amount that this, you know, dovetails with an exact like conservative moralism is the amount you should be throwing up, you know, nauseous and suspicious of this. Well,
1: like, let's, let's let's get into this because it leads to it leads to other weird shit. Like, so let's take about Alexandra Kolatai. what she yeah. says about sex workers, which they are like they're deserters in the army of labor. But like, when you would you think about that? You're like, but but you're supposed to be undoing labor and now you're saying it's literally the most important thing we could possibly do after you were just promising us freedom from being subjected to it in a in a way that which we did not control. Like, I mean, everybody knows we're still going to have to do work, as in physical labor, you know, even under communism, but we, we, it's our labor, right? We have, the the idea is we will produce enough to have the ability to make decisions about that. And like, according to this, nah, you got to be full in all the time.
0: <sighs> yeah, Colin Tai still has that bug where, It's not a bug. It's a feature, I suppose. Say. It's full. I forget actually the word. Hyperstatization or whatever. Hyperstatization. Is it hyperstatization where the only way out is to universalize it? This is something that this essay is good about, right? Like they want to defeat proletarianization by making everyone proletarian. Right. So in order to defeat this condition, you need to spread it to the ends of the earth so that everyone experiences it. It's like That's how we'll, we'll defeat it.
1: Hurt immunity. Like meet, it's like when you meet anarchist neo-chartalists who are like, uh, we need an absolutist theory of the state and money to undo the state and money. Um,
0: it's not too different than Marxist than like, like Trotsky's theory of the state, right? Like we'll just expand the power of the state so much that
1: it'll be like, there's no state. That was Hilferding's reading of capital and monopoly capital. we will expand the power of capital so much that it will gobble up all the interim firms, which frankly, given that Marx was one of the first people to really lump onto the business cycle, I don't know why anyone thought would ultimately work as if the monopolization of capital would undo the business cycle.
0: (sighs) Yeah. And so this is like ultimately where I feel like to put on my like tinfoil hat here, what good politically is like insisting on dialectical logic Maybe it's to defend an argument structure that's like, well, the way to defeat something is just to give all your power to it. <laughs> like, just make it universal. And then, you know, you'll have it licked for sure.
1: The an anarchist critique of Marxism, and, it's, and particularly since now people are like reading everything I say to figure out if I have deviated from the true gospel of Marx. There is a way in which, um, if you look at the way dialectics under Hegel were, were fastened, this actually doesn't even apply that much because that's just about ideas turning into other ideas as manifested by the spirit. When you, when you actually make it material, it gets even weirdly kind of more pernicious because you're literally saying, I need to materially give all my power and resources to this thing so it can undo itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll defend Marx against this, this kind of hard Hegelianism because I don't think he believed that. No, uh,
0: I don't don't think you believe that either. I think that his his attempt at turning Hegel on its head or whatever, there was the more specific version of it in the sort of systemic dialectic of capital. uh, You know, that that was some kind of real abstraction, which, you know, had idea-like characteristics or something. Then there was like a more proto-emergentist paradigm of social science and asterisk footnote, natural science, um, that, you know, those things were more what Marx was going for. But the attempts to systematize those very moves ends up with something very weird. And to borrow an old French critical theory thing, you have to do a sort of Hegelian transcendence of what dialectics means for Marxists. If it's going to mean anything at all, Marx's dialectic would be very different than Hegel's dialectic, which makes you, makes you wonder why they'd use the same word. But as it turns out, if you keep the mystification the same, it doesn't matter which word you use.
1: Also, I'd just like to remind people that dialectics is older than either one of them. Yeah. Okay. Talk about mystification. Let's go on to the infrastructure of the modern world, because... <laughs> There's a lot of mystification in modernness. That's a really yeah. crappy <laughs> <laughs> But you try. And even if I
0: cut it, you, it's important <laughs> that you try. Um, so, moving on to the infrastructure of the modern world, we actually get their theory for what the workers' movement was. And I love this part. This is a structural functional theory of why the workers movement even held. And so the basic points are as follows. The workers movement achieved some of its goals due to the emergence of infrastructural industries. So and the growth and concentration of workers was real. So those tendencies towards the collective worker were structurally real.
1: Right. Okay. And also, it explains some things we see later on that I haven't, like, that I've never heard a Marxist be able to explain. For example, like, why, why is it when you look at all the societies that claim socialism on, Earth, on a Leninist or whatever background that they have hyper growth? They actually do what, what early capitalism did stochastically much, much faster, building off of the prior movements. But also marrying it because this also happened simultaneously, like near simultaneously in class. So much so that we forget that, like in the fifties, it was even hard for like diehard communists to really see like what the differences were between like Fordism and and the Soviet Union. Like you read anything from that time period, and they're like, yeah, you know, there's a big difference because Cold War, but there's also no difference at all, like. Um, but anyway, back into that. So you see this rapid acceleration towards that. And then once you have all the infrastructure built, everything falls apart. Like <laughs>
0: Right. This turns out to be temporary in the 1970s. That's the punchline to that. So growth in concentration of workers is real, but not forever. You have two waves of industrial employment. You have the 1880s through 1914. And then up until maybe the 30s or something... You know, a lot of Marx's sort of economics predictions seem fine, but World War II really throws a wrench into this. Maybe not all of his political predictions, but his economic predictions. But World War II throws a wrench into this. And unexpectedly for Marx, the 1950s through 1973 has another wave of industrial employment. Basically the argument is that the workers' movement is the epiphenomenon, and I'm not using this in a reductive way. You know, obviously... End notes has room for political agency. I'm not sure if it was just a rhetorical flourish gone awry, but they seem to have a little too much room for political agency for their model to work. Um, workers' movement was the epiphenomenon of semi-skilled man workers and their industries. Without this structural, functional underpinning, you know, this base, you might say, you couldn't have the workers' movement.
1: Right. I find this very fascinating because the number of conflating factors that you have to talk about in here. So like Christopher Lash, for example, talks about the end of like the workers access to the family and the workers family, which is a weird development of the bourgeois family, too. And um, that in the same time period, the first thing you see is not the integration of, say, racial minorities, but the integration of women into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and during the same time period, you also see the stagnation of real rages because the households basically earn the same amount once the women enter which means in real terms after stagflation the men were earning shit you know and
0: Marxist not as little as the women but yes
1: (laughs) again it was hard to it was hard to judge what the women were earning comparatively from the historical background because the historical background was like none Um, which is not totally true but but it's not totally
0: true but for especially in the United States for white working class women
1: because, well, once you, you yeah. yeah. Once you got off the old tenant farm sharecropping model of working classness, which, again, in this weird way, because Americans have, you know, a, once a class denial, but then this image of the working class is based off of the infrastructural semi-skilled industries and also linking them, I think genealogically without realizing it, to tenant farmers and sharecroppers. Because those were the systems that were failing that pushed people into the semi-skilled work so like even when you read cultural historians talk about the working class and like before the 1890s for example they'll mention like tenant farmers and while they're not peasants and they're not really petite bourgeois they don't own their property um, they don't fit into this categorization scheme at all so, yeah, I mean, we have this kind of conflation in our, history, in our cultural history of this period. Um, and I think this really, you know, the semi skilled, heavy industrial worker, which is funny because, like, neoliberals always blame the workers for this. They're like, well, you're all, you know, you're not skilled enough. But how could they be? Like, it's like when everybody tells everyone to go learn coding, like, that's not an infinite right. field of employment.
0: Like, yeah, if everyone's learning to code, then. It loses its social and this is happening, of course. People hate JavaScript programmers for this, you know. It loses its status. It's, it's no me. longer what it what it is in the economy. Right. It's like become it's like what becoming a lawyer was. Then everyone went to law school. And now being a lawyer doesn't guarantee you any income unless you're going to, you know, you're in like the top decile of of graduates or something.
1: Whenever industry starts telling you that they need a bunch more workers in a specific field that is highly paid, it is usually to lower the wages in that field unless it is cartelized. And if it is cartelized, it is usually to artificially inflate the wages in that field and to keep people out, which is why we have a problem with stuff like doctors. Right. So anyway. um So
0: anyway, this is a function of what is cheekily called late industrialization, but basically means the whole like wave of industrializers that weren't England that come first. So they call it late industrialization because it's sort of what it's called in the literature, but really that means all of the early industrializers, except for that one that kind of invented it.
1: Uh, and also not the developing world, which was just about to do that 20 years later, specifically not th- Those are the late, late
0: industrializers, uh, which I, it's, it's very cheeky, but I think it proves their point <laughs> that like, thinking of that like first wave that was in England as late is at the very least Eurocentric and furthermore wrong. They were (laughs) the earliest aside from the one. So late industrialization actually describes something that you could only do right off the bat. And if you try it later, it doesn't work. We'll get to that. So the continental European states institute the quote American system and The American system is as follows, external tariffs, you abolish internal tariffs and support infrastructure, you fund big banks to stabilize inflation and form national capital, and then you institute public education, which serves the goals of state allegiance, standardizing the language, and promoting literacy. So that fourfold package is what creates the landscape for these infrastructural industries to form.
1: Um, Right. So that makes sense in 1890, right? Because that's like when you're finishing the actual formation of nations that began in 1848 in Europe as opposed to those. uh, And also it's when you kind of have a cohesive national project in the United States after the Civil War. And maybe most importantly, not
0: only for Endnotes, but also for Turchin, but another thing that they emphasize in common is what they both call the First Great Depression, 1873 through 1896. The Long Depression. That specifically inspired more intervention in infrastructure, and later it made urban planning necessary.
1: Interestingly yeah. enough, any socialist historian worth their salt until the 1960s knew to co- account for this. Lash mentions it in The Death of the First Wave of the Brahmin Bourgeoisie mm-hmm. because they actually collaborated in the destruction of the laissez faire industries because they knew that if they had another Long Depression, they were afraid that the working class would just wipe them out. Which, when you started having, you know, workers' power movements in the periphery of, of these giant empires, like, you know, in Russia and in China, this accelerates that fear. Not to sound like a malice again, but between those core economies being flushed with money after World War II and actual real wealth and capital, um, although some of that being more from the destruction of capital more than the than the extraction of it, to be fair. And then you you have this period where we need the infrastructure. We're flush with money. We have we have political fears to encourage the end of class tribalism. Ironically, the heyday of the working class is also the heyday of fucking class collaboration. Like I, I don't, yeah. I, it's the only time. For example, depending on who you ask, what explains it will go back and forth. Is it the power of the working class that causes the? the bourgeoisie and the adjacent who who has finally finished liquidating the aristocratic class also. Let's talk about that. That doesn't really happen until mm-hmm. the 1940s. Is it that which is compelling this social detente or, or is it structural factors of which the working class has no control, which is comparing this period of detente? And I actually don't know how you would prove one way or the other which one's actually the causal mechanism. It'd be hard to prove, but if you had in...
0: Your back pocket, let's say, a theory of historical materialism, anything like a base superstructure model, even one that thinks of epiphenomena as having its own causation. So that doesn't mean superstructure is just this dumb mirror that reflects economic facts, right? No matter what version of the theory you have, this should be front and center for at least what sets the terms. Endnotes has that on its side. This is a better Marxist explanation for the workers' movement than most of the internal explanations of the workers' movement or nostalgic romps through workers' movement history.